ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Dr. Utapal Dolakia. He holds the George R. Brown Chair of Marketing at Rice University. He's taught marketing and pricing to MBA students for over two decades and conducts research to advance our understanding of marketing strategy and consumer behavior. Today, we're going to talk about how anxiety affects consumer buying behavior, how that buying behavior changed during COVID, and what brands and other businesses can expect from consumers as we start to exit the pandemic. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I found your article on anxiety and consumer behavior when I was researching what we were likely to see as the pandemic continued, and then ultimately what we might expect when we came out the other side. I'm so glad we're able to connect and have this conversation because it's really so important for businesses to think about how to anticipate uh, what this experience will do to consumer behavior and how to meet that behavior. So first, I'd like to speak about anxiety and consumer behavior in a more run-of-the-mill pre-COVID, just what the knowns are around that. When consumers are experiencing anxiety, in your article, you indicate they're more likely to buy impulsively. Why is that and what does it look like? Um, okay, great. So let me set up the discussion a little bit uh, more and kind of give you my perspective on how I'm coming at this issue from. I'm basically a marketing professor and one of the uh, topics that interest me is financial decision-making of consumers. Mm -hmm. So within that context, um, I'm really interested to study how uh, people make decisions to save money and uh, invest money and basically make prudent consumption, buying consumption decisions and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and in that context, anxiety kind of keeps cropping up quite often. <laughs> so, for example, yeah. <laughs> so for example, one of the interesting findings is that uh, anxiety has a strong effect on saving behavior of people, on the on the ability of people to save money consistently, and uh, it works in a vicious circle. So, it works both ways. Anxious people find it hard to save money, um, and people who don't save money consistently. Uh, uh, become anxious. Okay, so it's like a vicious cycle which goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And um, and more broadly speaking, um, when we look at consumer behavior, um, I think uh, what we are really studying is people's relationship with money and uh, with actually using that money to uh, to uh, enjoy your life and to be able to do things uh, that you want and so on. Okay, so um, just looking at impulsive shopping by itself is kind of uh, looking at the kind of like taking a slice of behavior, which might not give you a complete perspective, right? Uh, right? So because um, again, uh, saving and consumption kind of go hand in hand. So um, with that kind of like preamble to the point of uh, impulsive shopping, very uh, kind of like uh, uh, broadly speaking, uh, there's a positive relationship between um, anxiety and impulsive behavior. Um, and uh, you'll see this uh, pretty much in the entire retail space. Uh, we have a kind of like this famous phrase called retail therapy for this. <laughs> right. Where, 
right? When people are feeling bad, they go and uh, 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 look for things to buy to make them feel good about themselves. Right. So that is the, that is the heart of the anxiety, impulsive uh, buying kind of relationship. And of course, marketers take uh, take advantage of this. Uh, I teach a class at Rice called Customer Experience Management, and we study different types of customer journeys that customers go through. And in the retail space, retail therapy, the retail therapy journey is maybe one of the three or four most prominent ones, you know, so it's a, it's a big deal in, hmm. in many marketing settings. That's interesting. One of the things you noted in your article was that insofar as that state of anxiety becomes constant and that behavior, that impulsive behavior can become compulsive. You know, you talked about it being a vicious cycle, if you have this vicious cycle and then you keep people in that vicious cycle, it becomes just more and more frequent. And so then if we if we think about, you know, COVID, financial anxiety, are, are we going to see a, people, do you think, leaning into this kind of retail therapy? And have we seen that through the pandemic? Have Has there been a an increase in kind of retail therapy to make themselves feel better? Yeah, so that, so you're asking me a lot of different things. So let's try to unpack <laughs> some of these them, things. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, so first, the relationship between impulsive uh, shopping and compulsive consumption. Or con- uh, and clearly, I mean, so impulsive uh, sh- buying or impulsive shopping is a little bit of a nuanced concept. Okay, okay. so it's not all negative, right? I mean, um, a layperson will think of uh, that someone is buying something impulsively, they are doing a bad thing. Right. But when you dig into the concept, that's not really the case. You know, we, we all have uh, sort of impulsive uh, urges to buy things once in a while. And for most of us, that's actually quite uh, healthy and that's just part of normal buying behavior. The problem arises when um, the impulsive shopping is not really to buy and enjoy the item that you are interested in, but to make you feel good when you are feeling bad. Um, and even if that you do that once in a while, I think that's still okay. Um, you know, um, right. when you keep repeating it, when it becomes something which uh, you just rely on to feel good, when you go and shop just because you want to feel good, and that is the uh, way which is most available to you. That is the problem. Oh, um, so when it's the and, act of the shopping itself versus the enjoyment of the item, is that the kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, so exactly. So what I mean okay. is the motivation for buying something, right? As someone who really studies prudent buying behavior, I think buying and consuming things is a major avenue for happiness for most of us. So um, <laughs> there's nothing wrong in that. And right, I mean, um, and there is nothing wrong in that. The issue arises... Uh, when your motivation to buy something is for the sake of buying that thing. It's not for enjoying it afterwards. Right. Um, you see, see, so that's, that is the problematic aspect of consumption. Mm. And when that uh, behavior happens over and over again, studies have shown that people kind of uh, uh, go and uh, uh, become uh, compulsive uh, shoppers or compulsive consumers, you know, and mm. There are many studies that show that that can have negative effects on all kinds of psychological uh, variables. Right. Does uh, so that's sort of anxiety prompting impulse, which then can perhaps lead to com- compulsive behavior. Do depressed consumers behave in a similar way, or do they behave in a slightly different way? 
So yeah, so uh, depression, uh, most of us in consumer behavior kind of tend to leave the study of depressed uh, individuals to uh, other areas of psychology. So uh, uh, there is much less research on um, on uh, 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 on how consumers who are depressed really behave, okay, at least to my mm -hmm. knowledge. Um, but let me go back to the second part of the question that you asked before, which is what is the, what is the impact of anxiety on, uh, uh, during this COVID pandemic and how that has affected consumer behavior? Right. So it is pretty clear to me that uh, uh, we are, our shopping habits have changed a lot. Um, one of the key, uh, everyone knows this, one of the dramatic changes has been the shift from physical shopping to digital shopping. Right. And, and again, I mean, there are aspects of digital shopping which uh, kind of uh, support or encourage impulsive uh, buying behavior. Well, sure, it's um, open you know, so, four hours a day, um, but this was also a trend that was already happening. It was just accelerated, right? It, I mean, uh, it was a trend which was happening, but the trend, at least um, uh, in, let's say if we were having this conversation in 2019, we would have had some kind of upper limit on how high this trend can go. So for example, where grocery shopping is concerned, most people predicted that the upper limit on how many people will shop for groceries through an app or curbside pickup and things like that is maybe like 20% or 25%. It's not going to be higher than that. I see. Now that number uh, in the in the future, so over the next five years or the next ten years, now the number uh, now the estimates have gone up considerably from there, forty percent, fifty percent, depending on who you ask. So oh, essentially, uh, a, a lot of people who were not expected to buy things online um, in the foreseeable future have kind of like moved into the camp of uh, buying things online. Okay, mm -hmm. and so. Um, yeah, but but it's still. I mean, there are many kind of uh, differences. There's a generational gap in 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 uh, online shopping behavior, for example. Um, but but the point is, uh, anxiety kind of promotes impulsive behavior in a general way. And when the environment kind of supports impulsive shopping to begin with, like many of the digital avenues do, um, you are going to find more of a relationship between anxiety and trying to get rid of that uh, negative feeling and uh, impulsive shopping behavior. I see, right. So- And then the other aspect, so I'm also interested. So just uh, as long as we are talking about COVID. Yeah. And so another thing I'm really fascinated by is this phenomenon of panic panic shopping or panic buying. Right. Um, and we have seen waves of it over the last uh, year. And that is also to a certain extent driven by anxiety and the need to gain control over some uh, arena of your life, you know? So that is another kind of connection between anxiety and uh, consumer behavior, which is quite uh, significant and has a uh, impact uh, that we can actually see, you know? Right. So that, that kind of anxiety purchase that's to establish control in, in some, some way and very much triggered by an, a very immediate triggering event. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about, I mean, if these upper limits have changed with digital, that's a durable change. Once somebody has experienced something and gotten comfortable with it, that's something they can then do. And if it was the only way to do something, then that was the way they got groceries. There were other things that emerged during COVID that you've highlighted. And one of them, which I thought was so interesting, was do-it-yourself services, sort of um, the idea that it would 
it was sort of a homemade with help kind of thing, uh, you know, kind of a, a new way of conceiving of what a service would be. And do you think that that is something that would be a durable change in consumer interest, desire, or is that something which is very much driven by the context and the moment? Um, great. Yeah. So again, I mean, that's a complex question. So let's try to address it uh, carefully here. Okay. So the first thing you said, I'm not so sure about that. So uh, we just uh, discussed a few minutes ago that online shopping, the upper limits on online shopping have changed. And now people expect 40 or 50% uh, of uh, uh, consumers to buy groceries online. Uh, right. But the, the really interesting question arises is what happens when the lifestyle normalizes after COVID? Okay, right. when we are able to go back to living the way we used to live before the pandemic. Okay, right. and there, um, so I'm, I'm not at all sure that the behavior is durable. Um, oh, for example, if I, may, if I just look at myself, uh, we have shifted to curbside delivery for pretty much the last year. We have not been inside a grocery store at all. But both my wife and I, we enjoy shopping in the, in the supermarket and looking at new things. And we don't do it often, but when we go, we really like to have that experiential kind of shopping episode, you know, so to speak. And mm -hmm. so I think we will revert back. I mean, right now we are perfectly okay with curbside. Uh, it serves our needs and uh, fits with our risk preferences. But mm -hmm. I don't think that we are going to continue to do curbside shopping once it is safe to go to the store. And my hunch is, I don't have any data on this, but my hunch is that a lot of other people feel the same way. You know, well, so, I wonder um, that you you made an interesting point in that that what you enjoy about the shopping is the new thing. So I wonder if it won't be nuanced that you might have some auto delivery of staples, but then the the new things, the interesting things, the what you're going to eat tonight might be something you're shopping. You know, so how be, yeah. how you conceive yeah. of it? That, that's right. Yeah, but uh, so so I, this reminds me, you know, like. Uh, uh, way back in 2008, uh, after the Great Recession, um, there was this entire discussion um, among all the marketing and consumer behavior experts about how people have changed their lifestyles and they have become more frugal and they are buying much <laughs> fewer things. Away. <laughs> and, yeah, and, that, that, and the discussion was exactly the same uh, issue of durability. You know, is, uh, is this frugality durable? Is, is everyone going to live simpler, minimalistic lifestyles? And we know the answer to that. The, the answer was clearly no. I mean, that was a very kind of like a situational phenomenon and uh, it went away, you know? So we have to be careful. I mean, not to read too much into what we see at the moment. And as an academic, I mean, that is one thing which we are always trying to separate um, and kind of look at what is situational, what is driven by the context and what is long-term durable, something which withstands different kind of uh, environments, you know? And more often than not, certain kind of like patterns which have persisted through years and decades are, are really, really resilient. So it is very hard to kind of like get rid of uh, old ways of behaving and adopt something completely new, you know, as a general principle. Well, if I'm at a brand, let's say I work for a um, a grocery chain and I'm an insights person who works for the grocery chain, and this is something we've leaned into because of the pandemic, but I'm looking ahead and I need to manage how things are, how do I go about testing what consumers will actually do 
or, or do I just need to wait? I mean, I, I, I think businesses want to be able to anticipate it. So how is the best way to assess that? If people, you know, if you do a survey and you ask somebody, when will you go to a concert again? When will you feel comfortable? How much can you trust the response that they give? How do you, how do you assess that? Yeah, uh, uh, a long time ago, 25 years ago, my, uh, my doctoral dissertation was on this topic of the relationship between intentions and behavior. Oh, um, I've got to okay. read that. And, <laughs> it's probably too outdated by now. But the, the, the one, uh, one statistic I remember when I was working on my dissertation is that across hundreds and hundreds of studies, uh, the relationship between a behavioral intention what someone says uh, or, their, or people's prediction of their own behavior and their actual behavior is like uh, less than 50%. So the correlation was uh, uh, maybe, I don't remember exactly what the number was, but maybe 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, something like this. Wow. So moderate, a moderate positive relationship. And um, this is uh, like something which is uh, almost kind of like a general principle for me, you know? Um, as a market researcher, I've done dozens of surveys over the years, but um, we are always very cautious with uh, using behavioral intentions uh, responses to predict behavior. Mm. Um, so to answer your question, um, I think it is really hard to predict when people will go and watch concerts uh, specifically, whether it will be in two months or four months, but a year or two from now, I can make a rather strong prediction that the concerts are going to be very popular and so is uh, in-store grocery shopping, you know? So okay. um, as an insights manager, um, I think it is important to kind of like keep an eye for the future as well as an eye on the kind of like the relatively short term, you know, versus the longer term future. In other words, what I'm saying is we can say with a fair degree of confidence that people will revert to their pre-COVID pandemic behavioral patterns once uh, like uh, once we are well past the COVID. But precisely when those changes will happen, it will be hard to see them from one day to the next, you see. Right. A question for you, since you do study consumer behavior, if we look at consumer behavior in, let's say, China or Europe or places where maybe they manage the pandemic a little bit better so they get out of it a little bit faster, how much can we generalize from what we see in these other cultures to the U.S. culture? So, so again, I mean, looking at this from a, a, a behavioral perspective, right. we have to make the distinction between um, a behavior which is kind of very deliberate and mindful versus okay. behavior which is habitual and uh, um, which people are kind of like just... Uh, uh, using their own scripts of behavior that they are used to. Essentially, the, the point is this, okay? In a place like China, where people didn't have a chance to form new habits, where they kind of like oh. some kind of disruption for a month or two, but uh, they reverted back to their normal life very quickly, oh. um, you know? Um, right. in, in that case, uh, uh, there, it was really like uh, very straightforward. Right. In, in the U.S. and in many Western countries, uh, the issue is that we have kind of fallen into routines uh, and certain ways of like habitual ways of behaving, like mm. this example of picking up a curbside. Right. So from my point of view, I'm now kind of in we are kind of now in the habit of uh, picking up our groceries through curbside uh, shopping. Uh, but the second part, so that is our habit. Right. Uh, fighting that habit is the fact that we don't like it as much as we like going into the store. 
So right. um, now when like, uh, once we get vaccinated and once we are, be- once COVID is behind us, those two kind of uh, uh, patterns are going to fight with each other, right? So um, my habit is eventually going to go away, but um, because I, I really prefer, I mindfully prefer the act of physical grocery shopping. It's interesting there is, I wonder if that's how you get to the actual intention. If you ask somebody, do you prefer to shop this way or that way? So you're just, you get to what they prefer. And then that might tell you where, even if you formed a new habit, if you prefer this other way, you might be likely to revert. But if you prefer doing it a new way, that habit maybe will become durable. So maybe that's a way to get at it, I wonder. Um, it, it could be. So uh, I'll tell you how I would answer the question. So if you ask me a question, uh, next week when you go grocery shopping, are you going to, uh, or do you intend to buy curbside? And I would say 100% yes, right? Um, if you ask me, um, when do you plan to go back to the store to grocery shop? My response will be like a shaky one. I might say it's a 50% possibility I will do it this summer, maybe 50% possibility will be until the fall or something like that. Mm. Um, and then if you ask me next year, a year from now, do you intend to shop in the store? And I will say 100% yes. Right. I, I mean, see. so, um, I so, so, it, yeah, so intentions questions are uh, contextual, you know, so it's a really interesting finding about, uh, about buying cars. So there was one study which was done, um, way in, I think in the early 1990s. And so they looked at, uh, at exactly this issue of like, if you ask someone, do you intend to buy a car in the next six months? Um, they will have a rather kind of like a shaky response. But if you ask for the next several years, they'll be relatively accurate in the direction of the fact whether they will buy a car or not, you know? Right. So time really matters. I mean, the, the context in which you ask, what you ask about when you ask about the behavioral intention um, really is a significant issue in, in how predictive it is of behavior. Right. That's so interesting. I had read in a Canadian study following the H1N1 pandemic that there was PTSD in the community that had experienced um, H1N1. And is that something that we can anticipate is, is going to be present post-COVID? Yeah. So uh, again, I mean, uh, we have to be a bit careful in uh, distinguishing psychological variables from like social variables, right? I mean, so if you talk about PTSD, it is very much an individual uh, level variable. We don't I, study, uh, we don't, we do not study it as much as, as consumer psychologists or as marketers, but we definitely think of it as something which is a property of an individual person. Um, and when you say society uh, uh, having PTSD, it's really hard to uh, um, uh, think about what that means. But here's what we can say, right? I mean, um, the general anxiety levels in a uh, uh, community, for example, affect community level behavioral patterns, uh, right? I mean, so uh, all of us are a little bit anxious. So uh, we are going to, as a, as a group, all, all of us, if you look at all the citizens of the US, for example, we are going to make uh, more impulsive shopping decisions in the aggregate. Um, so we can make those kinds of claims, but it's harder to kind of like go into, um, into kind of like uh, deeper processes and so on, you know? Right. Well, one of the things you had also mentioned that anxiety, in addition to impulsive behavior, we often see spending on luxury items, that this helps us um, sort of social signal that we're all fine, we're good. Is that something that um, that rubber bands back after, you know, you've you've gotten out of the situation um, or is that something that you then form a, you form a taste for luxury? 
Yeah, that's that's another great question. So um, I'll tell you a little bit of the background behind the research where this finding comes from. So there is this uh, theory in psychology called social psychology, which is called terror management theory. And uh, now there are a lot of critics of this theory also, and I don't have a position on whether I completely agree with, on, with it or not. But this is what the theory says. Um, it says that each one of us is really afraid to die. Okay, so it's a it's a it's a quote unquote terror okay. of death, and so psychologically we are always this terror of dying, this fear of dying, this intense fear of dying is in the back of our minds, and it's a, it affects our worldviews and how we think of uh, uh, kind of like all our behaviors and so on. Um, and one of the consequences, so again, this theory has dozens and dozens of studies, but one of the consequences of uh, of this experience of experiential terror, so to speak, is that uh, it encourages us to be materialistic because uh, uh, f- physical, tangible things, products, services, I mean, um, they kind of like keep us uh, from thinking about death. Okay? okay. And materialism in turn kind of like uh, leads us to want luxury goods and kind of like uh, show the, show it off and kind of use that as a social signal and things like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's where the link between anxiety, the anxiety uh, produced by this terror uh, of death, um, links to uh, luxury purchases. Okay. But again, as a general principle, if we just if we don't even go deeper deep into this theory and just look at the link between anxiety and uh, and shopping behavior. It makes sense that uh, a, a very effective form of retail therapy is going to be buying luxury goods, goods which you really covet and you really want and um, uh, goods that you can use to define your identity and so on, you know? Right. It's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, one other question, uh, because we're actually running close to time, uh is around a lot of things aren't aren't about goods, but they're about services. For instance, we had a lot of um, telemedicine happening because you know where that's a service. It's not you're not purchasing an item, but you you're getting a service, and it's changing the way in which you get that service. Based on our earlier com- part of the conversation, do you think that people will want that? still or will they crave the in-person that yes people have gone for telemedicine because they had to but they don't want to how do you what do you think about exactly that? yeah oh. that's a, yeah so um I, I can give you some specific anecdotal evidence because i one of the things i'm doing right now is working with the uh, veterinary uh, managers uh, association it's a vhma veterinary hospital managers association okay. and uh, so one study we are doing actually uh, looks at i look at all this from a pricing perspective but uh, one of the studies we are looking at is kind of uh, or talking to a lot of veterinary uh, hospital managers and they haven't moved to telemedicine but what they have moved to is like curbside uh, service so right. you can take your dog or your cat uh, to the uh, practice, but the practice itself is closed. They will kind of like um, interact with your pet outside on, on the curbside, and then they will give you uh, things to take home and so on. Mm. And so this has become very popular. Uh, I mean, uh, these uh, many of the practices uh, that I know of are kind of like booked for weeks in advance. Right. But when you ask, ask both the uh, veterinary doctors, their staff, and also the pet owners, None of them like this service, okay? Uh, <laughs> right. They just hate it. In fact, I mean, they hate it. They actively hate it. And they are just making do. I mean, they all understand it's a compromise. It's a sacrifice in quality. 
uh, this is something that we have to do at the movement. And everyone has kind of uh, agreed that we are going to revert to our normal way of behavior, ASAP. The same thing applies for, I think, telemedicine. It applies for online teaching. It applies to a lot of things we are doing right now in a kind of a broad-based way uh, with the kind of the general understanding that this is temporary and it has to, uh, it, it, we are just doing this for now, you know, and we're going to stop as soon as we can. This is so fascinating. And I think especially because <laughs> yeah. people are really leaning into the telemedicine, lots of investment going there. I, I, it's so interesting. Um, I am sure everyone listening will have found this conversation so valuable. Thank you so much. I really look forward to reading your your stuff. And now I want to look up your dissertation because I want to read about <laughs> that too. So thank you so much for the time. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next, and I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.